Hello and welcome to episode 45 in the CMS Pension Lawcast series. I'm Kate Richards, a partner in the CMS Pensions team, and joining me today are Senior Associate Jared Cole and Associate Megan Murphy. Today, we will be looking ahead at the biggest developments that will affect the pensions industry in 2023. There are some really significant pensions issues which schemes and sponsors are likely to be grappling with next year. We're going to look at quite a few of those issues today, including the new defined benefit funding code, the final regulations on notifiable events or the absence of them, government consultation on illiquid assets, passer guidance on exit agreements, the new ICO guidance, the single code, and guidance on diversity and inclusion in trustee boards. So that's quite a list. We won't cover dashboards as last month's lawcast was on that topic. I am now going to pass on to Jared, who will be looking at the new defined benefit funding code and the effect of high inflation on pension schemes. Thank you, Kate. So firstly, I'm going to look at the changes being proposed to the defined benefit funding regime. This is actually something that's been on the agenda for a few years now, but we can expect to see significant developments in 2023. So what are the key changes? Well, firstly, trustees will need to adopt a funding and investment strategy or FIS, which sets out how they intend to achieve low dependency on their sponsoring employer by the time their scheme reaches significant maturity. So there's a couple of things to unpack there. Firstly, what does low dependency mean? Well, this means trustees need to have an asset allocation and a funding basis such that they do not expect to need any further employer contributions by the time the scheme is at significant maturity in order to pay accrued benefits. So when will a scheme be significantly mature? This is expected to be the point at which the scheme has a liability duration, which is a technical measure based on expected future cash flows of 12 to 14 years. In practice, amongst other things, this means trustees will need to move into an asset allocation that is highly resilient to short-term changes in the market and which also is broadly matched to the expected future cash flows of the scheme in terms of pension payments. The funding and investment strategy will need to be recorded in a written statement of strategy which will also cover various supplementary matters including the extent to which the trustees think the FIS is being successfully implemented and any challenges facing that implementation. The statement will need to be produced and reviewed as part of the scheme's triennial actuarial valuation process. It will need to be signed by the chair of trustees and submitted to the pensions regulator. Employer agreement will be required on the funding and investment strategy itself and employer consultation will be required in respect of the supplementary matters. The next proposal is that trustees would need to repair technical provision deficits as soon as the employer can reasonably afford. 
this would mean that many employers would need to pay a greater level of contributions more quickly than would be required under the current regime, which allows for some more flexibility. Finally, there's a discussion around using a twin track approach to valuations. Employers and trustees will be able to opt for either a fast track approach if they met certain prescribed requirements, for example, certain assumptions or discount rates, or they could go down a bespoke route, which is more similar to the current process and would allow for greater flexibility but would also probably require more engagement with the regulator. So in terms of timings, well, the majority of the detail is still in draft at the moment and the changes will need to be brought about by a combination of new legislation from DWP and a new code of funding practice from the pensions regulator. The DWP consultation on draft regulations closed in October just past, and the regulator intends to issue a second consultation on its new code. And at the time of recording, we understand that is due to follow shortly. The most recent statement from TPR was that it expects the new regime to be in place by September 2023. However, some milestones along the way since that statement have been delayed, and it's fair to say that the details of the proposals have provoked some vigorous discussion in the industry. For example, some concerns have been raised that the proposals are simply too rigid. So DWP and TPR already have a lot to think about in their consultation responses. The new regime will be forward-looking only, so it will only apply to valuations which take place after it comes into effect. However, now the trustees know what is potentially coming down the road, it would be probably be prudent to start thinking about what effect the proposals might have on their long-term strategy. Next, I'm going to consider the current high inflation environment which started this year and looks likely to continue into 2023. One issue the trustees will probably want to think about is increases to pensions in payment. So DB schemes do offer a minimum level of inflation protection. However, the caps that apply are well below the current level of inflation and there's actually no requirement to increase benefits which accrued prior to 6th of April 1997. The result of this is that the value of many members' pensions is likely to be decreasing in real terms at the moment. However, many schemes do include an option to apply additional discretionary increases above the statutory minimum. This will often require employer consent given the cost implications but the position really depends upon the specific scheme rules. Now, where there is such a discretion, trustees have a duty to consider whether or not to exercise it. And the current high inflation would be a factor in favor of doing so. There are, however, other points to consider, obvious ones being the scheme's funding position and affordability for the sponsoring employer.
Another area that trustees may want to think about is whether their early retirement factors remain appropriate. Now, where a member takes early retirement, there's a requirement under the preservation regulations that the pension should be at least equal in value to what the member could have received had they retired at normal retirement date, taking into account the earlier start date of the pension. Now, increases to pensions in deferment look at inflation and caps over the long term, whereas increases to pensions in payment apply caps on an annual basis and are therefore more susceptible to high periods of inflation. The result is that many members may be better off deferring their pension rather than retiring now. And trustees may wish to consider re-examining their early retirement factors in order to bring the two positions into line. This is definitely an area in which legal and actuarial advice would be recommended. Now it's fair to say that these issues are only a couple of points in the broader picture. The Bank of England has been increasing interest rates in an effort to curb high inflation and this has actually had a beneficial impact on schemes funding levels. Also, I've been focusing on the impact on DB schemes, but DC schemes will be affected too. For example, they may wish to consider whether their investment options remain appropriate, and many members are likely to see the value of their DC pots eroding in real terms. So they're going to face some difficult decisions particularly if they're coming up to retirement. Also, members generally may be more susceptible to pension scams, so that's something that trustees will want to be particularly vigilant about at this time. And on that note, I'll hand back to Kate. Thank you, Jared. So first, I'm going to have a look at notifiable events. We've all been waiting for the new notifiable events legislation that was heralded in the Pension Schemes Act 2021. You may recall that that is a legislation that proposes the introduction of more corporate events, which will need to be notified to the regulator. So the original expectation was that final regulations on notifiable events would take effect in April 2022. However, we've not yet seen the regulations, which will set out the detail of the new events and there is no update from the government on when these final regulations might emerge. We anticipate that TPR will also need time to consult on revised guidance and a revised direction, setting out exclusions from the regulations. So this may all take some time. Meanwhile, the pensions regulator has issued recent blog posts setting out its expectations in relation to pensions and corporate activity. Its blog dated 28 September 2022 made some key points for trustees and employers when dealing with M&A activity affecting pension schemes. So for example, employers and bidders should communicate with schemes as a primary creditor when structuring a transaction employers should immediately alert trustees about a proposed corporate transaction. They should not use market sensitivity and regulatory notification provisions as an excuse to keep trustees in the dark. Trustees should be provided with direct access to the bidder 
and their advisors at the earliest opportunity in the transaction process. And this will allow trustees to set out to bidders the liabilities in the scheme, make clear they will be assessing any potential detriment and crucially begin negotiating protections for savers. Trustees shouldn't weaken the funding position to facilitate an M&A transaction unless they can clearly demonstrate with reasonable certainty the benefit of doing so. Some of these expectations go beyond the current legal requirements, as the point at which employers must notify trustees appears to be at an earlier stage. Sponsors and bidders can't ignore TPR's comments. TPR will intervene if they feel schemes are not being adequately protected. The blog will be helpful in understanding the kinds of behaviours that are more likely to attract a formal investigation and some factors that might go towards TPR deciding to use its moral hazard powers or even its new civil penalty and criminal powers. Now I'm going to look at illiquid assets. So the government is also increasing the governance and reporting burden on money purchase schemes. On the 6th October 2022, the government published its response to the March 2022 consultation on facilitating investment in illiquid assets, along with a further consultation on its draft regulations and guidance, which closed on 10th November 2022. The draft regulations provide for trustees of relevant schemes, which are basically money purchase schemes, to include information on their illiquid asset policy in the default fund statement of investment principles. Illiquid assets are defined as assets which can't easily or quickly be sold or exchanged for cash and where assets are invested in a collective investment scheme includes any assets held by that vehicle. The illiquid asset policy must include a statement as to whether or not investments include illiquid assets. Where investments do include illiquid assets, the policy must include details of the types of assets and how they are held. Where no illiquid assets are held, the policy must include an explanation of why the trustees have chosen not to invest in them. The new requirements will apply on the first occasion that the default statement of investment principles is updated after 1 October 2023, with a requirement that the policy must be included from 1 October 2024 at the latest. So it will affect some schemes in 2023. The draft regulations also provide for annual asset allocation disclosures for default funds of money purchase schemes. So trustees will have to calculate the percentage of assets in the default fund allocated to each of the asset classes, such as cash and bonds and other stipulated asset classes. Again, where default fund assets are invested in a collective investment scheme, the assets in this vehicle have to be included. This information must be included in the chair's statement in relation to the first scheme year, which ends after 1 October 2023 and published on a publicly available website. For schemes using auto-enrolment, the draft regulations also include amendments to the charges and governance regulations from 6 April 2023, 
excluding specified performance-based fees from those charges that are subject to the cap applicable to this category of scheme. The reason being that the government wants to give these schemes greater flexibility and freedom to enter into performance fee arrangements, where trustees agree this is in the members' best interest. The trustees must include in the chair's statement the amount of any performance-based fees incurred in relation to each default arrangement as a percentage of the average value of the assets held by that arrangement during the scheme year. This information must also be published on a publicly available website. This applies to the first scheme year ending after 6th April 2023. Next, I'm going to look at exit agreements. In September 2022, PASA, the Pensions Administration Standards Association, issued guidance designed to support trustees and administrators in planning a transition between administrators. This follows increased concerns around delays, unreasonable charges or out-of-scope services, and deterioration in the service provided during the notice period. Changes to the code are to be made with effect from 1 January 2023, including that for new administration appointments, the contract should include a clause setting out the terms for a subsequent transfer of services. For existing appointments, administrators should have a clearly stated policy on transferring schemes to a new administrator when existing contracts don't say anything. This policy should be available to trustees on request. The guidance also suggests that trustees should review administration contracts before 1 January 2023 to be clear on the terms at termination and if the administration contract doesn't include an exit clause, consider putting one in place. Finally, from me, I'm going to look at the new ICO guidance and international transfers. So there is some news in relation to GDPR. Organisations must use a new international data transfer agreement if they want to enter into new arrangements for overseas transfers from the UK instead of the old EU standard contractual clauses. Any existing arrangement for UK transfers based on the old EU standard contractual clauses must be replaced by 21 March 2024. In addition, the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, updated its guidance on 17 November 2022 in relation to international data transfers. The new guidance takes effect immediately and applies where a transfer of personal data is being made to a receiver located outside the UK, i.e. called a, a restricted transfer, which are separate controllers or processors and legally distinct from the sender. This type of transfer can be made if there are appropriate safeguards in place to protect people's rights and freedoms about their personal data. For example, if the sender and receiver have put in place a contract with standard data protection clauses. However, before making a transfer using one of the appropriate safeguards, 
The guidance says that the sender must be satisfied that the relevant protections in the UK GDPR are not undermined for people whose data is transferred. And this should be done by undertaking a transfer risk assessment. There is a section on these risk assessments in the new guidance. If, having undertaken a transfer risk assessment, the sender decides that the transfer mechanism will not provide appropriate safeguards and effective and enforceable data subject rights for all the personal data, then the transfer should not be made. I will now hand you over to Megan, who will discuss further developments in the pensions industry in 2023. Thanks, Kate. The two topics that I'm going to be discussing today are the single code of practice and equality, diversity and inclusion. Starting with the single code of practice. This is something that should be featuring on pension scheme agendas next year if it isn't already. When in force, the pension regulator's single code of practice will apply to all governing bodies of occupational, personal and public pension schemes. The draft single code converts the content of 10 existing codes of practice into just one code. On top of that, it also adds some entirely new sections, largely to cover off requirements for schemes to have effective systems of governance and internal controls. It's fair to say that the final single code of practice is going to be an incredibly large document with a lot to get to grips with, so it's worth starting to think about it now if you aren't already. The draft single code has been organised into shorter topic focused modules, which are all interlinked and it is intended to be a web based living document. This means that it will be reviewed and amended on an ongoing basis, but any changes will need to undergo consultation and be approved by Parliament. Currently, the single code remains in draft form. The pensions regulator published a consultation on the draft single code in 2021 which closed in spring last year. An interim response was published in the following August and the final response is not yet available. Whilst a date for the final version of the single code hasn't yet been announced, the industry is anticipating the final draft to be published in early 2023. In the meantime, there may be a lot of work for schemes to do to get compliant with the single code. So now is the time to start working with your advisors, carrying out a gap analysis of what you do and don't have and getting your documentation prepared. The single code of practice, and in particular, the requirement for schemes to have an effective system of governance, requires a large amount of documentation in the form of various written policies and processes. Governing bodies may already have a lot of this documentation in place, but there could also be some gaps that need filling. So schemes should be carrying out that analysis and developing a project plan. One point to note in particular is the own risk assessment, which is one of the most substantial new areas of the single code. Schemes with over 100 members will need to complete their own risk assessment within 12 months of the single code coming into force. So schemes will need to be ready to comply. Moving on to our final topic for today, which is equality, diversity and inclusion, or EDI as I will refer to it. So why is EDI of growing interest in the pensions industry? Well, recent research carried out by various industry bodies 
shows that UK pension schemes are generally behind UK companies in terms of their EDI considerations. One of the pension regulator's strategic objectives up to 2025 is to promote high standards of EDI across the pension industry. And it's been taking steps to lead by example by promoting EDI in its own organisation. The pensions regulator has three strategic aims. First, to be a fair, diverse and inclusive employer. Second, to build a collective understanding of why pension inequalities occur and to work in partnership with others seeking to reduce them. And third, to promote high standards of equality, diversity and inclusion among the regulated community. The pensions regulator has also published an action plan in partnership with the Diversity and Inclusion Industry Working Group, which supports the regulator's strategic aims. The regulator is also currently working with the industry working group to produce a package of good practice guidance, case studies and tools for employers, trustees and advisors. It's intended that this guidance will be published by the end of March 2023. EDI spans a lot of different areas of pensions, but one area in particular that is being encouraged in the industry is to increase diversity and inclusion on governing bodies of pension schemes. The concern being that if there isn't a diverse group of individuals, that could lead to groupthink, less challenges to decision making, and therefore less robust decision making and overall governance. Going forwards, as the focus on EDI across the industry continues to increase, governing bodies of pension schemes should be considering EDI for the governance benefits. Schemes should be asking themselves whether there is more that they could be doing in this area. For example, carrying out an EDI audit of the scheme and its governance and consider adopting an EDI policy. Governing bodies could also be engaging with the sponsoring employer of the scheme to align with its own EDI approach. Now back to Kate to wrap us up. Thanks, Megan, and thanks, Jared. Further information on legal developments affecting the pensions industry in 2023 can be found on the CMS website and in our app, CMS Pensions Law Appraised, which you can download from the app shop. Thank you very much for listening. We hope that you found it useful. This is the final Lawcast episode of 2022. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be released in the new year. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.